Join us on the Steps of 36, a question and answer conversation that crosses thresholds into the histories, lives, influences, and stories of the person and figure behind their work. A podcast by RAA at the Architectural Association. In this episode, we are joined by Esther Choi. All right, Esther. So we're going to start with a couple general questions um, about uh, your your background. So what is your full name and date of birth? My full name is Esther Miriam Choi, and I was born on June 20th, 1977, also known as the cusp of magic in astrology. Very nice. Um, so, um, question number two. Do you have uh, ever have a nickname and do you still use it? No nickname. No. No. So from that, um, we're going to jump to your childhood and a series of questions about that. Um, where did you grow up? I grew up in a suburb of Toronto called Rexdale, Ontario. It's sort of, a, um, I'm going to get really technical, part of like sort of northern Etobicoke. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much where I spent my entire childhood. Mm. And, and you were born there? In, yeah. in Ontario, yeah. And what about Canada do you miss? Healthcare, uh, family. <laughs> um, what else? Yeah, I think healthcare and family sort of rank at the top, too. Yeah. Uh, being American and living in the UK, I'm quite happy to have healthcare. Mm-hmm. So, um, moving on to question four um, What was the typology of the home that you grew up in? Um, I grew up in a pretty modest sort of single family, like detached house, like four bedroom, pretty tiny actually. Um, but it was sort of kind of classic, uh, I don't know, classic, like North Etobicoke kind of aluminum siding, uh, no garage, just sort of like, you know, you get a driveway. It's sort of really kind of bare bones, um, house and, It was in a neighborhood that was primarily sort of like lower income working class neighborhood, mostly of recent immigrants. And the Canadian government had like a whole program to reallocate or relocate um, immigrants to Canada in the 60s and 70s. But they would put, you know, put it like immigrant communities out in the middle of nowhere with like no amenities. Um, So, yeah. So that's sort of like where I grew up. And so there wasn't a whole lot around, frankly, but. There were a ton of kids um, playing in the streets all the time because you'd also have like, you know, kind of like, like eight, eight person families living in like a three bedroom house, you know, just like crammed in there. Um, so there were always like tons of kids to play with. But so that was like the one plus. But um, yeah, it was sort of like uh, I'm, I'm getting more into the neighborhood rather than typology. But there it was a if I reflect back on this, like. you know, we didn't really have a lot of stuff around us. And if you didn't have a car, um, public transportation was really kind of bare bones at the time. Um, it's slowly improving now, but, um, but yeah, so that was sort of, sort of the kind of, I guess, typology or neighborhood that I grew up in. With that lack of infrastructure, transport, I'm assuming children were actually quite creative with, with what they could do. Yeah. I mean, you kind of didn't have, I mean, I, uh, it's kind of bad to say, but I re- watched a lot of TV. <laughs> I spent a lot of time just like playing friends on the street because there just sort of wasn't a lot around. Like, you know, you'd have to drive to a library. You'd have to drive to, 
we sort of were in like a bit of a food desert as well. So, you know, if you didn't have a car, you were really screwed. Mm. Um, you know, it'd take you like an hour and a half, almost two hours to get downtown, um, to get any kind of like drop of culture in, in a, in a sense. Right. Like, um, so yeah, so it was, I, I guess, but I guess also, I don't know, like the whole cliche of like growing up as a kid in the late seventies or early eighties is that like, you know, we just didn't have like, screen culture or any of that stuff we have now so basically i just like you just have your imagination and some maybe some books or something and your friends and you just kind of yeah you 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 have a different way of kind of like playing i guess right and did that lack of culture draw you to urban environments later on in your life or to the art world and yeah for sure i mean i was like you know 15, 16, going downtown, I would make that trek. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. It's like, you know, almost like four hours round trip just to go downtown. But um, yeah, I found music at a pretty early age. I was like playing in a very bad (laughs) punk band when I was in high school. Um, And so your lifeline to like the world in a way became music and buying records or in fanzines basically like that was like i had pen pals which sounds kind of crazy but yeah i had pen pals like pen pals in my own city even um and you know this is like pre-email right so so you would actually have phone calls with people and yeah i had pen pals with people that like lived in the same province or even pen pals in the UK actually um had a I made became really good friends with the woman who's now in California but um but through her through her band we were all really young and playing music and kind of interested in similar sets of ideas and politics and so yeah so going downtown was like a really big deal the there was one indie bookstore that was really amazing that sold um cultural theory you know cultural studies books and critical theory and that's sort of where i learned about feminism and you know concepts like intersectionality and marxism and all these things when i was younger before going to university and um so so yeah so long way of saying yes um although i wasn't necessarily going to museums or galleries per se and seeing art but definitely like publications were really important as a kind of lifeline to understand what was happening in other parts of the world right Excellent. Um, shifting back a bit for question five to the house. Um, how many people uh, live together in the house that you grew up in? Just four of us, my brother, myself, my mom and dad. And and your brother, is he li- still living in Canada or? He is. He's living in Toronto. Yeah. Toronto, yeah. And he's close in age? He's six years younger than I am. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Um Question number six, uh, do you have a favorite toy as a child? I don't think it really classifies as a toy, but I think probably just like crayons and paper were sort of what I gravitated towards all the time. I was always drawing. Um, and if I, I don't even know if it is really a toy even, but I had like a little guitar, not a real guitar, but like, I guess, yeah, a toy guitar, but I would play that all the time. So yeah, I think that's kind of it. But I wasn't really like one for dolls and things like that. I don't know. Yeah. And you mentioned you were in a band and you had a toy the guitar. Do you still play music? No, I don't. I think about it sometimes. But I played, when I played in a band, I played bass. And it's kind of hard to play 
by yourself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and the, the crayons, did you have like the 12 pack or the 84 pack or? Probably a 12 pack. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah I always love the smell of the the crayons the waxy kind of smell when i was a child um i I had quite a few crayons myself um shifting to question number seven were there any foods uh, that you refused to eat when you were young no i pretty much ate everything which i think might be cultural i I wasn't really given a choice on what to eat it's sort of like when i see parents now i mean it's probably better for kids that they have some level of like autonomy right. <laughs> and like input into their yeah. own lives but i just it, you just didn't really have a choice like you just kind of had to eat everything when you were a kid at least in my family so we weren't really indulged to be like picky eaters at all okay yeah right. quite the opposite for me i was extremely picky really Real, very very picky yep i uh, my mom would serve food and like tacos for instance and all i would eat was cheese and lettuce <laughs> On the tacos, yeah. We're gonna eat meat, ground beef, no tomatoes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But now I eat everything, so something changed. <laughs> so, um, final question for your childhood. Um, before before you left home, uh, in terms of family sort of vacations or holidays, what was your most memorable one? Mm, we didn't travel a lot because it was really expensive, but we would um, we'd have like kind of we'd go up our families, like I grew up, um, my cousins are very close in age. And I think, I don't know how my aunts, my mom orchestrated this, but basically like a whole, we were all born around the same time. (laughs) I think they like synced their watches and like made it happen. (laughs) But for that reason, it was really fun and probably a lot easier for, um, the adults in the family to just like get together and the kids could kind of like take care of themselves in a way because we would entertain each other. And then, you know, so we would, we'd go up North, they'd rent a cottage or something and everyone kind of like, so those kinds of, um, summers are really nice. But I think the one vacation that I can remember that my parents took me on, um, was when I was a teenager and I was very grumpy and depressed and did not and just did not want to go on vacation with my parents because you know you're just a bit too old for that or you think you're too old for that plus my brother was six years younger so he was like you know quite a bit younger than me and it was hard to relate to him and he was just more of a you know just like the annoying little brother that would always like just love to annoy you you know yeah but we ended up (laughs) yeah we ended up taking a trip to um the maritimes and we went to like Newfoundland and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and like PEI. And it was uh, a road trip because it was cheaper than flying. And it, but I have to say the landscape was incredible and it like somehow cut through my disgruntled teenage, you know, um, depression basically. And it was amazing, like an amazing vacation on that level. And it was, I think one of the first times that really like a landscape I, like I found it really transformative in that sense. Um, yeah. And, you know, eating lobster every other day didn't hurt either. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, it was a kind of amazing trip. Um, and I still haven't actually been back since, since then, but I just remember that it was, um, just, yeah, really kind of special and surprising for me. Um, and probably the last trip that I took with my parents, 
as a teenager, because at that point I was like desperate to have some independence and do my own thing. So, but, um, but yeah, that was, uh, was pretty special. Uh, you can't pass up a lobster roll. It's impossible. Um, I mean, it was, it's also so at the time it was so inexpensive to have lobster too, like in definitely. the Maritimes, right. It's sort of like a dime a dozen, like you can have it so frequently. So it was pretty, pretty luxe in a way, but, um, but yeah, it was kind of really magical. Actually, that part, that part of Canada is really amazing. Yeah. I'm always amazed. I mean, I've, I've been to that part of Canada quite recently, maybe about six years ago. And, um, I drove up the main coast and, and it, it is, um, once you enter Canada, it's, it's magical and magnificent and everyone's so friendly and, and the landscape, as you say, is quite, quite different there because of the, the way the, I think the coast and the, and the water kind of crashes up against the, the rocks and there's all the moss everywhere and it's just all the craggy coasts and it's really beautiful. Um, but I'm also quite always and you touched upon how sometimes the, the least things least things you want to do things that you sort of have no interest in doing um sometimes wind up being the most amazing experiences of, of life and, and i think um i've had quite a few experiences where i went, didn't want to do anything or didn't want to do it um and wound up just it's you know a memory i constantly think about so uh, it's it's a good lesson i think um so moving on from your childhood, uh, we're going to ask a series of questions about your, your work. Um, and uh, obviously, um, you lectured at the AA um, as part of the New Model series, talking about um, your office hours um, uh, practice. Um, so be nice to hear some about that. Um, but here, here's question number nine. Uh, how would you describe what you do? I would say that, that I am an artist um, and by virtue of sort of following my curiosities in art um, and my kind of intellectual interests, I also sort of became a scholar <laughs> um, as part of that journey. Um, so I sort of wear both hats and I work across the fields of art and architecture. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that's the simplest way of describing what I do. Um, so for some people, I'm an architecture historian. For other people, I'm a photo-based artist. For other people, I'm all of the above. Um, yeah. And and do you feel that having sort of that cross-disciplinary practice, one informs the other quite, quite often and, and impactfully? I, I think it's making more sense to me now how the two have a reciprocal relationship or some kind of dialogical relationship between the two. Um, I, I think for a long time, I felt a lot of pressure to, to conform to one or the other in terms of an identity. Um, mm. it's much easier professionally and certainly in academia to just say you do one thing. Um, I mean, you know, this, like you, you wear a lot of hats and it's, uh, in some ways it's a very like, I'm going to be a historian. It's very like, you know, 20th, 21st century thing to do. Whereas once I started studying these 18th and 19th century uh, figures, it became, you realize actually a lot of people were a lot of multi-hyphenate kind of, you know, had multi-hyphenate identities and that there are composites and they never had to apologize for, for any of those interests. So, um, so yeah. And, and I, you know, and for me, like thinking about um, image making and, narrative telling or storytelling, um, through history or through theory or whatever you'd like to, you know, whatever kind of mechanisms that are textual, um, 
they're not that far off. You know, for me, there's a kind of like rootedness uh, or like a reciprocal relationship. So, um, yeah. So I think as I, I guess the question is, or sort of the answer is that it's starting to make more sense to me how the two are related, but they're not necessarily the same thing. And I think a lot of times people think that somehow my historical research might have a kind of one-to-one illustrative relationship in, in images that I make or, or artistic projects that I have. And it's not. And I think that in some ways the artistic work has always been at the core rooted in the same kind of conceptual interests as my historical work or my research, but it's much more speculative and it kind of works in a different part of my brain and a mm. different sort of, um, yeah, it's just like, I think was it like Kiki Smith said, like art, art is art making is just another way of thinking. And I, I, that, that really helped me to kind of not be so apologetic about the fact that I still like, making art (laughs) (laughs) and that was sort of i think expected of me to a degree when i was like pursuing my um phd that somehow i would like you know quit the hobby of making art and then just get to the real business of being a scholar and and i you know i just had to be honest with myself and i don't think the two of them can i don't think it would be right to kind of cut off one one part of me for the other so anyway it's a very long way of saying um you know, I, I think that that's a question I always struggle answering succinctly um, because I'm kind of in it. And I think that, you know, 30 years from now, I probably will have a better answer and a, and a larger body of work to show how the two might be more synthesized or integrated. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important we move away from sort of categorizing people like into such specific um, areas of practice. Um like you said, I wear a lot of hats and I, I found that too. I, I came to the AA and I did one year of history and theory and all of a sudden I was a history and theory person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even though I had 10 years of practice, right, you know, right. practical experience and, and that sort of thing. So I think, I think it's really important. We move away from that sort of uh, concept of, of in, you know, some an individual doing one path. Mm. Um, moving on to question number 10. Uh, did you always know that you would end up doing what you do now? As a child. I did. Yeah. 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 That's um, good. I think much to the chagrin of my parents, but <laughs> <laughs> my biology teacher as well, they right. were like pushing me to study science and go into medicine because my, I was always interested in those, in those subjects as well. And they certainly, um, appear in my scholarship, but, um, yeah, no, I knew from the time I was like, I can remember being like four years old and saying, I just want to be an artist, but I also weirdly wanted to be a professor okay. or teacher. And I didn't, and I loved making books at a, right. as a young, I don't know, person. So I think in some ways, like it was always really obvious what I would end up doing, but yeah. Hmm. That's good. It's good to know your path early on. Um, question number 11, uh, what are the tools that you use, um, to work with? Mm, uh, I guess my laptop is pretty crucial. Uh, you know, laptop camera. Um, I actually have a lot like for image making, there's a lot of sort of material that I use, but, um, I would say if I had to break it down, it would really be like camera, laptop, tripod my brain and probably a library. I like that the the brain is a tool. Um, do you, do you, do you, um, do you, is all your 
image making is all digitally done or do you also sort of collage or go into a dark room? I, I shoot a lot of medium format and large format film. So there actually is a lot of material overhead in some ways. And I also, oftentimes my work will start with sculpture. So using some kind of medium in some ways that then, and, you know, it's also, um, you know, I've worked on different projects, but one kind of thing that I often come back to in my work is like creating what look like seamless large scale photographs, but they're actually composite images of like sometimes upwards of 40 negatives that are placed in one image. So I'm always sort of going back and forth between analog and digital. Um, and I output my photos onto digital or sorry, analog, like, you know, um, paper, but, but through digital processes. So it's always sort of like dialectical in that sense and kind of going back and forth. Hmm. That's good. It's, yeah, it's important. We, we continue working with our hands and materiality and, um, we, we push that a lot at the school and, and I think it's, yeah, especially during the COVID and the last handful of years, everything went digital and, and it's nice to be back actually in the school and see Mm -hmm. the analog side of things. Um, so, uh, Question number 12. Um, so we know sort of what tools that you like to work with. What space do you like to work in? I have been looking for a studio for so long in New York. Right. And a, a, let me preface this by saying like an affordable studio in a safe area. But like th- those two factors seem to be the, you know, really difficult to, as criteria to, to, to meet. Um, so you've, you've sort of found me at a moment where I'm desperately in need of a studio and right now working from home, but very inadequately, um, because a lot of my stuff is in storage, actually. Um, my office basically is in storage. So I hope that this will manifest, I'm putting it out there to the universe that I will manifest a very, uh, a very good studio space that can be very useful because I, I do work much better when I have an allocated workspace and it doesn't, um, like I, I can't work in co-working environments or yeah. I've tried and yeah. it just, yeah. I, I mean, or maybe it was just also that like I was in the company of people I really, really liked. So therefore I just wanted to talk to them all the time, but <laughs> it's, uh, I, I sort of do work better in more punitive environments where you're sort of like alone in a room and with minimal, um, stimulants to the outside world. So, yeah. Yeah. I understand that. I turned my second bedroom in, to, during COVID into like a blacked out space where I, I couldn't hear anything and see anything and I, I, I get I get a lot of work done there I, st- yeah. I started painting again which was really nice so oh, nice. yeah yeah but yeah no um I was speaking to someone recently I hear Athens is the place to be for large studio space that's very very cheap um but I know that's far away from New York so <laughs> um question number 13 is there an app that you cannot live without I hate to say it but Google's pretty helpful yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. I don't, I, I wish I was more like, I don't know. I could have a wittier answer, but yeah, no, it's, I mean, Google maps is my favorite app. I think I use it all the time to find everything. Not actually very rarely where I'm going <laughs> more so restaurants, pubs, um, that sort of thing. So I understand. Um, last question about work. Um, number 14, is there one technological device, um, that you could invent? If there is one technological device that you could invent, uh, what would it be? I guess this sort of 
exists in a way. But I had a recent conversation with a graphic designer, Ben Furman Lee, who designs a lot of architecture publications, actually. And um, I was talking to him about emotional typography. Like, wouldn't it be... So it's not really an app or a, de- a technological device, but um, in some ways, like, as, a, as an experiment, would it... If typography was more, like, understood um, to register very specific emotions... Like, would that in some ways reduce the ambiguity of communication, especially via texting, right? So like sarcasm font, uh, you know, sincerity font or right. whatever it might be, right? Um, I don't know. I, I guess that's in some ways what the emoji has sort of replaced. But and, and you know, and his response, and which was totally I agree with is that typography actually is meant to be affective and emotional in that sense. Yes, but, yeah. but I think it's like a very nuanced kind of like, um, you know, it's very nuanced in the sense of how it registers those effects, right? Like it's for the people that have like the masters in typography that would know that, you know, right. this font is da or the history of a particular typeface. But I just always thought that would be an interesting kind of experiment social experiment i think that's quite brilliant i I mean i agree the typeface it's um it's quite exclusive in terms of who can recognize what what emotive qualities it has um and i don't think the emoji actually really gets at things like sarcasm um sort of uh the complexities of language uh when you're writing a text or even making a joke um it just doesn't pick up uh, uh, that sort of aspect. So I actually think that's a brilliant idea. So maybe we could try it. Maybe we should, I think, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I work with uh, Sasha Loeb at the AA, who who um, is our head of design and works for um, Pentagram. Um, I think he would really enjoy that idea. So maybe we should, we should see what we can do about that. Yeah, yeah. sounds yeah. great. All right, good. But we, can we trademark this? I think we should, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We need to get a patent. Yeah, let's patent yeah. this. All right. All right. <laughs> Good. All right. Um, so shifting away from work, well, I guess it's sort of tied to it, um, are some questions about uh, art and architecture. Um, so f- uh, 15, uh, where do you live now? I live, I just moved. Okay. So I moved twice in the past, what was it, three months, four months? It was insane. So I... <laughs> Uh, but the short answer is that I now live back in my old neighborhood of Prospect Heights in Brooklyn um, after a ridiculous uh, housing search. Because right now, have, finding an apartment in New York is incredibly difficult. So, um, But I'm very happy where I am right now in Prospect Heights. Good, good. Um, and in that area, in, this, in New York or Brooklyn, um, question number 16, is there one hidden, hidden building or space that you would recommend to visit? I feel like the one place in New York broadly that I don't go to enough, but I always really enjoy. And that feels kind of special is the cloisters, but that's a bit of a trek from where I am at least. But, um, but I do feel like what's really special about it is you go up there and you really do feel like you're in some other orbit of reality. So I enjoy that. Right. And do you often want to be in another orbit of reality? Often, yes. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Um, so uh, shifting to question 17, uh, what is your favorite building currently in existence? So um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but have you heard of the Integratron? No. Okay. So next time you're out, um, 
in California. It's in Flanders, California, near Joshua Tree, about, I think, maybe a 20, 30-minute drive from Joshua Tree. Um, so it's in the middle of a desert. Your GPS won't work. Um, it's a building that was designed, a circular building that was designed by an aeronautics engineer named George Fentassel, um, I think in the fifties, I, I used to be, uh, more sort of up on the history of George Fentassel, but in any case, there's all these like myth- mythologies around him in the desert, but he built this building and, um, with the hope that it would convert positive ions in the body to negative ions. So it would be a healing space of the body. And he apparently, he apparently like based this on theories by Nikola Tesla, which, uh, um, so it was supposed to have these metal rods sort of, um, bisecting the building, um, and that they would spin and it would like convert. And, you know, it's in this area that's supposed to already energetically have, I don't know, geologic forces that are I don't know. There's some kind of triangulation with the energy centers of the earth, et cetera. Um, apparently if he had finished building the, the structure and tried to put people in it, people probably would have died, but <laughs> <laughs> he never finished the structure. Right. He passed away. And basically two sisters who are artists purchased the structure and, uh, observe the amazing acoustical properties of Whoa. it. So basically Integratron now is a kind of sound bath that often musicians or just, just, you know, people interested in acoustics will travel to. And what's really amazing is that because there's no metal in the building, um, you can hear, so they'll, they'll play these sort of, um, quartz bowls and you hear the reverberations in your body and they sort of, um, you know, stagger it based on your chakras. But what's amazing is that whoever is like exactly sort of, uh, 10 feet away from you at the other side of the building. And, and you're basically all lying on the, on these sort of yoga mats, listening to the sound bath. Uh, you can hear all of the noises this person makes as if you're wearing headphones and they're inside of your brain. It's wow. really bizarre. And you also, as the quartz bowls are playing, you can, um, feel it physically in your body, but also hear it in a, in a way that's quite internal. It's, it's, I don't know how to explain that, but, um, it's a, the most physicalized sensation of sound that I've ever experienced. And I became a convert after going the first time, like t- in total ignorance, just like packing up a rental car and driving out there, having no idea where I was going or what I was going to experience. Um, and there were only two other people there at the time. And it's, it was so incredible, but it will also, because it's so physical, will often release emotions in your body or people will have like all kinds of different physiological responses. So sometimes people will start just, just burst into tears or, um, they'll start sleeping and then you're in agony because you hear someone who's like 10 feet away from you snoring as if you're, and you can't get them out of your mind. Right. So it's sort of like, it's a, it's a real mixed bag of sort of, um, experiences that you can have, but I would highly recommend it. And I would highly recommend that you go at a time when it's not popular. So like not on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, but really on a weekday, um, when there won't be a lot of people there and it's, it's just amazing. And also the drive out there is amazing. Just the landscape is incredible. It's great. I think you've given me my next uh, school trip because we go to LA every three years. Oh, and, you and definitely yeah, have to go. Yeah, yeah. And we, last time we actually went to Vegas and, and the Joshua Tree Park. So it, we must have been close. So next time, it sounds amazing. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you. It's, <laughs> it's on my itinerary now. 
Um, so moving on to question uh, 18. If you could visit one place um, or piece of architecture that no longer exists, uh, what would it be? This is not, uh, I don't know, This I feel like I should be more responsible as an architectural historian, but I would say probably the house that my mother grew up in, in Bolivia. Um, wow. My mom, and even in South Korea, my mom moved a lot when she was young and ended up um, immigrating to Bolivia when she was a teenager. And that sort of time in my family's, extended family's history is like, there's so much, there's so many stories that are so rich from that time. Um, but I, yeah, I would just love to kind of see sort of how, how they lived and, and where they lived and how they grew up. And I, you know, I've just heard a lot of stories about sort of the difficulty of like immigrating to um, Bolivia and not speaking any Spanish, right, <laughs> like right. trying to communicate and like learning Spanish and the whole thing. So, so yeah, so I would love to, I would love to, 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 you know, go time travel a bit and see what that was like. Right. Yeah, I think it's part of the human human condition to want to uh, yeah, see how our parents grew up, see how our grandparents grew up. My grandparents immigrated from from Europe and they always told stories about Italy and Ireland and always were quite fascinating. And yeah, but it's hard to actually imagine that. So mm -hmm. have you been to Bolivia? I have not. You have not? Mm -hmm. No, I would love to. Uh, okay, so moving on. Um, to question number 19 if you could select one vehicle to travel around the world in what would it be i honestly have no idea <laughs> i don't know uh, also vehicle kind of implies that it would be maybe not automotive but i don't know let's say hot air balloon oh very nice so <laughs> is that is that so you can obviously just see everything from above yeah that... i mean i feel like the yeah, why, why not? You know, like, I feel like I don't look up enough. Okay. So, you know. Right. It could take some amazing images. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of my favorite books um, when I was in undergraduate school was James Corner's uh, Taking Measures Across the American Landscape and those incredible images um, from above in the Cessna uh, airplane. Um, but I think the air balloon would be be a lot more relaxing. <laughs> especially during turbulent uh turbulent weather exactly <laughs> yeah. storms yeah <laughs> would you would you want to design the balloon would i so want to design the balloon the sure why not the colors and yeah yeah sure why not yeah, right. yeah. i think it'd be fun never thought about designing a balloon <laughs> um question number 20 uh what building material do you think is ugly and, and you despise I don't know that it, it's for aesthetic reasons, but I'm right now working on an article about concrete and um, looking at its relationship to um, colonialism and especially right now the kind of, uh, it's not, I wouldn't say emergence, but there are a lot of citizens groups that have been sprouting up around the world um, because some of many of the aggregate um, plants are being located next to people's homes, frankly, and it's right. just causing incredible um, social and environmental damage. So um, I would say that that is definitely a material that um, I think causes a lot of harm that we need to rethink. I agree. I was I spent some time in India working on a project which was full of concrete. Um, and I went to a, a sort of a talk um, about concrete, um, mostly with respect to earthquakes. 
and it was really amazing to learn that um, sort of the local building um, sort of traditions and and techniques uh, for small houses and buildings uh, sort of on the sort of the foothills of the Himalayas um, sort of withstood earthquakes. Um, but in the 60s and 70s, they came in with a bunch of concrete to build new buildings um, that were supposedly better for the communities, which were completely devastated during the earthquakes um, and actually um, sort of, yeah, uh, unfortunately killed quite a few of the inhabitants. And it was the first time I realized that concrete is sort of not the cure-all for everything. And we're finding that out more and more in, in the environment. And um, yeah, I, when I talk to my students about material, it's sort of, I think we need to shift away from it. No. Yeah, I, it gets even more insidious too when we think about how one of the biggest funders of quote unquote sustainable um, research is Lafarge, or the Wholesome Foundation, which is, of course, connected to Lafarge Wholesome, which is the, one of the biggest um, concrete aggregates producers in the world, um, who have also been charged with numerous environmental and, and human rights offenses. Um, so, I, you know, I think like a lot of that needs to be unpacked in terms of our profession and disciplines adherence to certain sources of funding and, and the kind of greenwashing that takes place. So there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot there that I think, you know, um, I hope more people will spend attention, time and attention towards. Yeah, I do too. It's something that the building industry really has to take on board, um, cause it's not helping our environment. All right, we're going to shift to the next group of questions um, about culture, I guess culture, loosely defined culture. Um, question number 21, what is your favorite restaurant in New York? I don't have one. I, I'm, I have to say I struggle with like favorite questions yeah. because I, I'm... And there's so many restaurants in New York. There's too. so many, yeah. <laughs> but also I, I think I, I'm a person that enjoys variety. And um, so I don't know that I have a favorite restaurant. I'm honest. That's fair. It's understandable. I, I, we might need to change that question in the future. It's quite difficult. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I would answer in, in London as well. Well, actually, in London, maybe it's because I don't live there. But St. John's, um, I, I love St. John's in, in London. And I think it's, uh, I know there are several locations. And I've never been to, like, the fine dining restaurant. But just, like, the what's the one that you can just sort of show up and there's, like, basically a bar and you just sit in these tables it's almost like cafeteria style it's um, in um uh spittlefields i believe yeah i don't know yeah it's, there's one one location where it's super casual you can bring a dog in it's yeah. just very like very casual and i love that and i love that it just doesn't feel um and people probably will disagree with me but is there something about it that just feels sort of like it is what it is like it's there's no um yeah, I don't know. If you want a grilled cheese sandwich, you get a grilled cheese sandwich. Like, it's just sort of like, it is what it is. Yeah. A glass of wine and like, the, that's what it is. And I, I kind of, I just enjoy, I enjoy, um, I'm not, as much as I enjoy delicious food, I'm not one for sort of like Michelin star experiences. It just, you know, I am always more impressed by when you can just take really simple things and make them really delicious. So, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Anyways, speaking of, you mentioned that you know you can bring dogs into the restaurant. Is, is that allowed in New York? No. No. Yeah. <laughs> my 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 family is always amazed when they come visit um, London. How there's about ten dogs in in the pub or a restaurant. So. Yeah, love it. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah. 
Um, well, this isn't really a favorite question because and it doesn't necessarily have to be about food specifically. But what do you, uh, question number 22 is what do you consider to be your perfect meal? It could be environment. It could be a, a sort of place um, or it could be food. I love dim sum. I love dim sum maybe because I grew up eating it on Sundays as a treat, my family. Um, but I love, I don't know. I just kind of love everything about it. I love like carts, people pushing around carts (laughs) that you get to kind of see and pick. And it's like real time, like selection experience, just like you don't necessarily have to like order off a menu. I love the variety. I love that you have so many different kinds of like different types of flavor profiles happening that it's sort of contingent on what they decide to make that day. And that everything is like a little perfect bite size for me. Like that's my desert Island food. If I had to pick just because it sort of meets a lot of criteria on that level, but yeah, I think as someone that like, maybe I have commitment issues, but I just love the variety of it. Right. Yeah. That, that references back to what you said earlier about variety in food. So it seems to be, would you say it's a comfort meal for you mm. or just bringing back memories? Yeah. It just makes me think about like being young and growing up and just, you know, my parents are very religious, so they would, you know, I see a force, <laughs> Right. And I had to go to church. Uh, I stopped when I was age of six, 15, but, um, they, yeah, that was sort of our reward for like sitting in a church pew for two hours as a kid with like <laughs> mild ADHD and like not being able to do anything. And so that was like, that was usually a, a kind of reward or a treat for good behavior. Um, that or like weirdly like a Jamaican patty from like down the street from the church. There was like the best Jamaican patties ever. And so it was sort of one or the other, you know? And yeah. So I, I, maybe it is like Pavlovian or something at this point that for me, like Jamaican patties and and dim sum are like the two foods that I kind of, I see as reward treat, treat meals or something, but yeah. I had a different reaction. My, my reward for an, an hour in church was waffles and pancakes, um, which I no longer like. So I think it is actually the opposite reaction of <laughs> of not, not wanting uh, that reward. But um, yeah, dim sum is uh, great. There's actually a new new dim sum shop right near school, which I found two days ago. So I'm quite happy about that. If you're in London, we can go. I had some good dim sum in London. I went with... Um, uh, some architect friends actually. And, uh, yeah, it was really delicious. Really, really good. Yeah. Good. Um, so we'll move on to question 23. Um, what was the last cultural event, uh, that you attended a film, cinema, uh, play, uh, gallery show? I have been in Canada for the past month or so. Okay. Um, sort of like helping out my family with some stuff. So my mind, you know, like Instagram is filled with different, uh, like reminders of all the things that I'm missing in New York. And there are lots of shows that I missed. Actually, one thing, one show I really enjoyed actually was the, um, Tacita Dean show at Marion Goodman gallery, which was, uh, not the last thing that I attended, but definitely something that I thought was really beautiful. And, um, yeah, I don't always like, I have to admit, I, I'm, you know, it makes me, I think, like, 
uh, it's an uncool thing to say, but like I had been exposed to a lot of Tassadadine's uh, durational videos and like time-based works um, when I was in university and I, you know, TA'd for a film scholar. And so we, she would have these loner sort of pieces that we'd watch in like a theater. It's a really amazing resource. But, you know, watching like, a t- three hour however long that film was with cows and a sunset or a sunrise or whatever it was just like it was really hard for me to digest but i have to say that i've grown to really appreciate um her work and i thought her show at marion goodman was really really beautiful so yeah i saw her show it was a handful of years ago at the portrait gallery in london um it was quite amazing it was about eight or seven um seven or eight screens uh that were like life size i mean you can inhabit them and but it was it was eight screens of all uh, the same act um that she recorded of two men sort of together um with eight different cameras uh, all different viewpoints um and so each screen had one of the different viewpoints so as you moved around the screens you would see uh, sort of the, the front of their face the side of their face and it was really just very immersive and, and an amazing show yeah. Yeah, actually, that made me think of um, what I sh- what I what I could have actually said was the Julie Maritou show, also at Marion Goodman. But then you know, Julie Maritou also had like a, a pretty large um, kind of monographic show, you know, museum show. But um, but that show at Marion Goodman of Julie Maritou's work, and I just I'm thinking of this because um, Tessa Dean had made a, a documentary or sort of a, a time based work about Julie Maritou. But I I think Julie Maritou is like one of the most brilliant artists ever and that show is really incredible in terms of like how she's able to create this like ongoing dialogue with mark making in a way that is so rich and continues to grow with complexity and i just think that that you know one of the hardest things about being an artist is that you don't have like you don't have assignments you know what i mean it's not like you're given a task right you have to kind of continually create problems in a way that you then you, you know, you, that you challenge and you kind of, that grows your practice. And I think that um, Meredith's work is incredible in that sense, in terms of thinking about the complexities of that process of painting and mark making. And I've, I, I real I just admire um, her, her kind of body of work so much. It's nice to have those sorts of inspirations. Um, I think it's, it's important. It's, it's yeah. humbling too, yeah, it right? Exactly. It's really, really yeah. humbling because you you look at sort of what she had accomplished by the time she was my age, and I'm like, man, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta hurry up. This is not, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. True. But but you know, Walter. I remind my students too. Walter Gropius made a factory by the time he was 26. So you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what my. I mean, my old boss Moshe, Moshe Safdi. I mean, he did Habitat when he was in his early 20s. So yeah. So it's very humbling. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so moving on from, from that question to 24, but staying with sort of, let's say film, um, if you can inhabit one film, what would it be? Another tricky one. This is a tricky one. Well, one filmmaker who I really love, um, is Olivier Isaias. And what I, I would say there's like, um, I find in his films that even, characters who are in turmoil there's still a kind of beauty to the experience and it sort of reminds you that that is sort of what life is about is actually about feeling the feelings even when they're unpleasant so maybe maybe being a character in one of his films would be um 
would be, I don't know, maybe be an interesting experience for that reason, because there's a kind of, I, mean, I don't really know how it does it, but there's a kind of like poetics to the entire thing that, and, and I don't think it's just cinema, cinematographic. I think it's actually, um, a lot about sort of, yeah, I don't know what, I don't know what it is, but I think it just like, there's a way in which the empathy you feel for character, the characters in his films, um, there's something so beautiful about it that, I don't know. It might be nice to experience. I don't know. As I think, I think it's because we, those characters sort of relate to all of us in some way. Uh, and that's where the empathy comes from. Uh, even though, yeah, I find it's a different uh, medium completely, but I find the same thing in like a Francis Bacon painting. Um, when I look at the characters and they, they're going through sort of that sort of transformation uh, and that pain, but it feels actually quite real and quite connected. Um, so. I I had a bad Frank Francis Bacon phase as a teenager because I went to an arts high school and I'm a failed painter and I was convinced I was going to be a painter. So I have these like terrible portraits that I made as a teenager <laughs> that were inspired by Francis Bacon. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's like, I, I appreciate Francis Bacon so much as an artist, but I can't help but disassociate. Like I, I can't help but associate his work with that, like really embarrassing right. teenage angst that I felt <laughs> where I was trying to be my own Francis Bacon. But yeah, <laughs> I think we've all tried. Yeah. <laughs> um, number 25 is another favorite question, but maybe I'll, I'll reword it. So what television show uh, do you enjoy watching or maybe inspired you um, at points or do you not watch TV? <laughs> I don't watch TV, but I watched a lot of TV growing up, which I don't know. You can like analyze that because apparently it's bad for you. But um, I would say early Sesame Street was pretty incredible. Like the kind of psychedelic phase of Sesame Street where also the politics were really progressive. Um, and they were able to nestle in sort of like really progressive ideas um, in a format that was like so kind of easy, easily kind of easy to consume in, in a way, right? So there's something really subversive about that that I, I kind of love. Uh -huh. Have you ever watched it let's say recently in, in your adult life. No, no. And I'm sure it's totally different. <laughs> it's like Elmo fied. Yeah. This is, this is a pre Elmo, uh, pre Elmo era. It's impressive though. As a, as a child, you picked up on those nuances, um, that you just mentioned. I mean, I remember there was like one segment on breastfeeding hmm. and how breastfeeding is normal and natural and how, you know, organisms feed each other, animals feed each other. And I just, I just remember thinking like, huh, like that's, you don't see that all the time, but, um, but it was also one of the only, I mean, growing up in Canada, at least it was the only, one of the only shows where I didn't necessarily see a lot of Asian people on that show, but I saw people of color on that show. Right. And that was like really refreshing to me to be able to kind of see a variety of different types of people and also like um also like there's something really progressive about just like there was no like the there wasn't a kind of classist reading of vocation and occupation you know like everyone was sort of equally important in the neighborhood and i think that that was really beautiful um i mean we could keep going and dissecting the kind of like yeah. social politics <laughs> of disney world or, i'm sorry disney world uh, of sesame street but it was like a really interesting counterpart to disney world in that right. sense right absolutely yeah yeah. Sounds like Sesame Street should be rerun. 
for people to. I mean, you can from. watch it on yeah. HBO. Yeah, yeah. I have. I've been. I've been watching right. <laughs> early Sesame Street. <laughs> Good. Um, uh, maybe returning to music. Maybe this will be a punk album. But um, number twenty-six. Mm. What was the first album that you bought? So the first actual LP, like vinyl record, I bought was a band called Excuse Seventeen. It was a self-titled record. It was on. Was it Kill Rock Stars? I think that label. I used to buy all of the records on kill rock stars. Um, and that was a pretty, yeah, that was like a pretty important record for me. It's like, if I'm honest, kind of unlistenable now, but it was pretty important for me and I still own it. Yeah. Is it punk? Yeah. It's like a, yeah. Riot girl punk okay. record. Okay. Um, uh, one of the members went off to form Sleater Kinney, but it was, it's a pretty, it's in some ways really unlistenable. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sticking with music, question number 27. Uh, which music, mu musician or band do you secretly love um, but are embarrassed to admit to? So I, I generally have a pretty wide range of musical like affinities. Um, but... Um, there is a New York City hardcore band called Madball that I have, there's one record in particular that I really enjoy. And it's embarrassing because it's a total bonehead record. Like right. the, the audience of like who goes to Madball show, the band, like they're, they're just bonehead dudes that are kind of like, we probably don't align in terms of our views and terms of like, the world in although it, i don't know that's really reflected in their lyrics but um but yeah i have a soft spot for some really deeply dumb like hardcore bands that are just like and i you know would i played in hardcore bands and went to all those shows and i was definitely always like there are very few people of color in that space and very few women in that space so right. i was in some ways, I think maybe even like being there was an act of defiance in some ways to like the status quo of what that was, what that was for and about. But right. like, I, yeah, mad ball. Sorry. It's right. just like, it's, it's deeply dumb, but man, they, they can write a good riff. So I don't know. Yeah. But it's this, I feel the same way about some metal bands too. You know, I also played in metal bands and like, again, like I was definitely I still would be like considered to not be the normal kind of target audience for that type of music. But I have to say it's like super fun to play and yeah. Well, and if it speaks to you and I guess get, get gets you dancing, that's what, that's what matters. <laughs> no, <laughs> I guess. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so maybe there's 28, which is another favorite um, question. So maybe um, what sort of album or if it's not your favorite album, sort of album that you're listening to now or um, that you're finding quite uh, enjoyable and. Uh, I, I have. Yeah, it's hard to, again, name just one. Sorry, yeah. I'm a bad person to have on this show. No, no, no. <laughs> like, um, I will say one album that I still listen to that i've probably been listening to since i was like 17 is this this band called teen dresh who are again all like femme identifying people um from portland and it was a, just there's a it, it's called personal best and they were like a really prominent well prominent for me like queer kind of post-riot girl uh post-punk band 
Um, and they were so incredibly adept, like, like so technically proficient as musicians that like their music is really, was actually really hard to play at the time for me, like learning how to play music and stuff. And, um, I still listen to that record all the time. I think that there's like, it's just such a well, it's also the best produced record, but it's like the, the songwriting in it is so good. And yeah. it kind of sums up also for me, it just sums up that kind of era of time so well. Um, and like, is like, was like for me an incredible example of like other women that were also listening to this like bonehead music, but then decided to subvert it and like kind of make it their own. And I just thought that that was like, it was, it was just, it made such a huge mark on me growing up. And it still to this day, like brings back like, Sometimes if I'm feeling a little down, I'll put it on. And it kind of reminds me of sort of like, not my roots, but like, it kind of gives you a bit of a pep. Like it kind of reminds you why you do the things you do or who, what you believe in and who you are. And I just think that like, it's kind of amazing for a piece of art, whether it's like a record or a painting or whatever it might be to be able to do that and conjure those feelings in someone. So, so yeah. Kudos to Team Drush. That record is incredible, and I would highly recommend everyone like listen to it. But it still must be good music because if you listen to it many years later, you know, this long afterwards, if it wasn't good music, you would notice it. So it not only speaks to you, but it must, yeah, it must have some good songs, good lyrics, good riffs. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of. I mean, I've obviously my tastes in music have changed and grown in. I don't know. 25 years or whatever but like um but I think a lot of the stuff that I listened to when I was a teenager I don't know I still think it's pretty good like I still listen to Bad Brains I still listen to you know like even some electronic music that I used to you know I worked in a record store that was my job in college and like I was like the I was a hostile like record store clerk that was interested in like indie rock post-punk and hardcore and punk rock you know what I mean like that was my kind of purview but but you're, you know, I worked with folks that were like hardcore into reggae and dub and like hardcore into techno and hardcore into all, you know, all of these like uber nerdy things and just absorbed a lot from that. And, you know, I, I think there's so much good stuff out there, but, but I don't know. And maybe it is just kind of like, it's sort of like having an accent. What is it like you, you retain an accent from wherever you were before you were 11 years old or whatever maybe it's the same kind of thing with like imprint of music. I don't know. Possibly. All right, we're going to shift um, to a couple questions that I would say veer towards the more serious, um, some sort of like current events, political issues going on in the world. Um, so question number 29. Um, recently, we've had, obviously, a lot of hate, hate crimes we've seen in North America, um, uh, sort of gun violence that have been driven by hate crimes, um, things such as people jogging uh, in Central Park, um, being attacked, etc., um, some similar things happening here in the UK. Um, and so sort of what's your, what's your sort of take on, on what's happening in the world in relation to hate crimes, mostly actually, uh, taking part, um, and happening to people of color around the world? Yeah. I mean, this is an issue pretty close to my heart. Um, primarily because I have been the victim of a hate crime several times repeatedly in my life actually but um certainly in the past year or so i've noticed like a lot of really difficult um incidents that have occurred not only for myself but also like other aapi folks 
um, specifically in New York, but obviously like everywhere um, taking place. Um, and it's been really frustrating. Um, you know, I feel like, I feel like, uh, for what it's worth, I mean, I, I'm, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit at like social media activism, but I do think it is a tool to have people become more aware of the experiences of others. And it just feels like it's always sort of people of color kind of advocating for, um, you know, advocating for safety and advocating for, um, more increased awareness. Um, and you're just kind of like, you're just kind of like, you know, speaking into a vacuum a little bit. Um, and it's also doubly like frustrating to see, especially with like the recent sort of, um, events happening in the U S that are hate crime motivated, not that they're not being called out as hate crimes. You know, it's sort of like maybe racially motivated, you know, like the, the way that media sort of like, um, the language they use is really problematic. And, um, yeah, so it's been a real source of, it's like a, a very real issue that I've, um, I've experienced, you know, I, I was one of the number of attacks that I've experienced was just on my way home from work. Right. at like eight o'clock on the subway in, in, in New York. And, um, I, I just, I think it was really traumatic for me to have a, someone pull a knife on me on the subway and threaten my life. And I, I truly thought I was going to be murdered and stabbed on the subway and there were people around and no one did anything. Everyone was like glued to their phones and sort of like, you know, doing what you do as a commuter in New York. And, um, yeah, it was, it was really destabilizing, but I think what was really hard as well is that like, you know, you're expected to just sort of like meet your deadlines. Right. So like, you just like go back to work the next day and act like nothing is wrong. And, and it was hard having to also explain to people who have not experienced hate crimes, sort of that maybe I need to take a time out from this, submitting this article to you, or maybe it might be hard for me to teach this class. Um, with my students and it, when you're, it's not a theoretical issue. It's something that's like, you know, really affecting you, um, psychologically, emotionally, everything. Right. Cause you, you literally the night, the night before thought you were going to die. Right. So that, that's a really hard, I, I just don't think even within institutions, there's a lot of bandwidth or like there isn't a toolkit to really, support faculty of color or, um, femme identifying faculty or, you know, people that are, that have to go through the kind of societal, like really experiencing the uneven terrain of society in this way and expected to show up for professional obligations and everything else. Like it's, there's not a lot of space for that. And people aren't trained to know how to respond to that. And, you know, even, just asking the institution that I teach at to acknowledge the hate crimes that are affecting a huge swath of their 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 students and their and not really faculty because there aren't many people of color on faculty where I teach but um, but that's been really frustrating if I'm really honest you know and and until I think institutions specifically or employers find ways to address that the harm that's being done to people of color is not theoretical, that it actually affects their own faculty, their own employees, their own students in ways that are really robust, then, you know, it's, 
it's just perpetuating and exacerbating a problem that's existing, you know? So I've noticed even friends in different industries, for example, a friend of mine, uh, is a producer. She's a white woman. She, um, was working on a film led by an indigenous crew and indigenous director, and they were tackling, um, they were tackling a and I'm, I'm not that knowledgeable about the specific storyline, but like a, a kind of a, a journalistic project um, that was really difficult for the crew to deal with because it was uh, very triggering. Right. Um, so they actually like, you know, as part of the process of producing and storytelling um, had resources available to the crew to help them through that experience, uh, which I thought was like, kind of a no-brainer in some ways, but you don't see that happening even in educational institutions. And my students will have to privately message me and share their experiences of being attacked on the subway, on their way to school or whatever it might be. And yet there's no larger conversation happening about the impact that living in this world has on, you know, on you as an architect or an artist or whatever it might be, right? Or student. And so I just think that somehow that disconnect needs to be bridged. So that's sort of like, um, it's a really specific example that's kind of coming from my own experience. And, and, but I, I just know that when I see like, um, you know, elders, API elders or people like in line trying to get, um, pepper spray and it's just, it breaks my heart because I just wish that people could, um, imagine their own, the elders in their own families being susceptible to this kind of hatred and, um, that there, there needs to just be a, before we can even start to think about the measures or the ways in which we can try to transform society, we have to at least acknowledge the problem. And that, that in and of itself seems to be such a, like such a difficulty, right? Like, like everyone right now is really focused on gun violence, but they're not really talking about what's motivating the gun violence. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. And also who is, you know, and, and so there's, it's just a really kind of complicated set of issues that are all nested together. But, um, yeah, I mean, I wish I had more like more insight into that, but for me, it's, it's just so rooted in, um, the experiences I've had even researching around the world, like to do my PhD, like I have said that, you know, there's an addendum for all the archives I went to, but I should have an addendum in my dissertation for all the hate crimes I experienced while traveling alone as a woman of color, you know, to various countries around the world to produce that knowledge, right. right and to right. excavate that knowledge. And that includes the UK. I've had incredibly negative experiences in the UK um, that were really scary. And in, in Berlin, you know, I was like physically attacked in Berlin while trying to go to like the Gropius archives. I mean, it just kind of goes on and on and on. Right. But there's no space to talk about that. Right. And, um, and I think that until we do, until we talk about that, it is prohibitive to operate in the world for certain subjectivities and, um, it's just, we're not really going to get anywhere. So, I mean, so this is to say like not to bring it into office hours, but that's, I think why office hours as, as a kind of initiative and a space where, um, you know, cultural practitioners of color could 
talk about these experiences became, it became really important, at least like when it started a couple of years ago, because we could have very real conversations about that. And so when I talked about, for example, doing a PhD, I talked about a lot about the kind of, um, to the, to the, and that was sort of the first, how office hours began. Like, you know, I would talk about, um, not only the financial issues around that or the lack questions around, you know, the canon and like what it means to be a, an aspiring historian of color, like, you know, contributing to a canon or multiple canons, but also the, like the lived realities of like what it means to travel alone and, um, be in countries that are in many spaces that are very inhospitable to you and the kind of real physical harm that can come from that work which right. you don't think about because you think about as a historian, you're just going to be sitting around some archive and like filled with dusty books and, you know, and that you have a pretty nerdy, um, you know, nerdy kind of experience or existence, but it's, it's actually the contrary. Um, navigating through those spaces can be really scary. So, um, yeah. So anyways, that's a, sorry, long, long answer to your question, but it's a, it's a really hard question that I think can be tackled in, in m- multiple sectors within our field, um, in ways that are actually very precise and very acute. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm first very sorry you've gone through so many of these quite tragic and terrible experiences. Um, I, th- I think, I mean, you touch upon so many different things within within that answer. Um, I mean, in terms of sort of bureaucracy and people in charge of institutions. Um, too often, perhaps making decisions and policies um, without having any experiences of being sort of attacked and or um, sort of um, a victim uh, of sort of these crimes. Um, and, and because of that, then the policies that institutions put in actually don't really address the issue. Um, and they become more of a, ch- uh, you know, box checking exercise to say that we have this. Um, and, and I think that leads to something else you said about a lot of times people don't admit that they have these prejudices embedded within them. Um, uh, And I think the first thing for all of us to do is admit that we have those. Um, Because I think if if you can't, um, then you're never going to get beyond sort of of accepting the fact that we have to make change. And I see it sort of in generations like my my parents' generation, you know, to admit that you're prejudiced or racist is like they they won't do it because they they don't think they are. Um, and, but we all have it, um, and and I think uh, that for me that's a very important step. Um, that and we find it here um, within the UK, of course. Um, but I think that's really uh, quite important. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And I also think. I mean. You mentioned the media as well and the sort of rhetoric. Um, and you're right, when there's attacks um, by, made by a person of color or a person of different ethnicity, ethnicity uh, in, in the US or the UK, it's immediately a hate crime. But when it's, a, when it's a white person making the attack, the media tends to hold off the rhetoric long before they term it a hate crime. Um, and, and that's really dangerous, um, in, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I, it's yeah, as you say, it touches upon so many different things, and and it seemed to be getting worse, actually, within the world. And so many triggers set things off. Um, COVID, for example, um, set off so many Asian hate crimes in in the U.S. and the U.K. for really no reason. Um, and a lot of that also has to do with messaging from politicians uh, and the media. Um, and that's that's 
you know, just very, very sad and problematic. Well, I mean, historically, like you always see some kind of marginalized group um, or minoritized group being scapegoated for some larger economic issue or health issue or whatever it might be. I mean, this is like, this is the thing with COVID and, you know, calling it the China flu, the China virus. I mean, it's not, to me, I was like, this is the same thing I've seen, you know, any historian can tell you, anyone that has even a modicum of like knowledge around history can point to many examples throughout history of when this has happened and over and over again. And usually it's, uh, yeah, you know, whether it's being motivated by, um, you know, having to deflect accountability or, or having to, or a land grab, right? Like whether, whatever the motivation is that this is just a kind of like, kind of ritual tactic. And so it's just unfortunate that we can't, yeah, we were, people are not students of history in that sense. Right. Um, but it's, it's, it's just, yeah, it's a really unfortunate time. And on the one hand though, it also has, on the other hand, it has actually, I think, um, I've noticed at least in the past 20 years, like a more pronounced presence around AAPI kind of activism, which has been great to see because I certainly didn't have that growing up. And I think I was like 15 before I saw a person of color that looked like me on television, which is insane. Um, you know, everyone always touts how multicultural Toronto and Canada is, but it's not in that sense. Right. And, and so to your point around like, um, everyone's internalized prejudices. Like if you have, I, I don't know how you couldn't internalize, um, white supremacy and heteropatriarchy and all of these values that are continually being uplifted on the covers of magazines in news media in you know, television sitcoms, like everywhere, right? Like it's in- impossible for you to not internalize that in some capacity and then assimilate it to whatever kind of subjective positioning you're in. And so, yeah. And I, I, I agree with you. And I, I think in some ways the people that think that they are the most PC, the most progressive politically, the most sort of do-gooder, anti-racist, anti, you know, anti-homophobic, anti-every, you know, uh, feminist, et cetera, can cause the greatest harm for that reason. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We have a lot of, uh, I, but you know, I also want to really remain hopeful and positive that things are changing. And, um, and I do think that often has to do with just also like looking to people that haven't been in positions of leadership, right? Like maybe let's see what happens. Right. Right, And I I can guarantee that probably things would change a little bit. Right. Um, just by having a Dean, a Dean that isn't, you know, the kind of status quo that you've seen before, right. Someone that can actually empathize and draw from lived experience, of, of, you know, and represent a, a larger gradient of concerns. And I think that, you know, the, that kind of leadership could be something that could really, you know, we, we can, we can look forward to hopefully. Absolutely. So. And, and I think your, your optimism comes through in your, in your practice of office hours and sort of how that has emerged and, and giving platforms to people sort of to discuss, as you said, um, sort of equity and, and sort of, uh, through through storytelling and and hopefully um, uh, sort of that I'm sure I know it's helped quite a few people as as you said. Yeah, yeah I mean I I just like, I think at the basic premise of it is not necessarily even just equity but liberation. So and that strategies of liberation have to be inherently collective and they have to be um, 
not one size fits all for every situation, but actually that there are a lot of different strategies that we can create and that, you know, different people need to create and that we need that kind of plurality in order to think about the kind of wide gamut of problems that, and and world-making issues that we face, right? So it was sort of more about that than it was about like a space to kind of complain or to feel victimized. And, and I know some people kind of entered into that space, I think, expecting that kind of vibe for lack of a better word. And, but my, my intention at least, and I don't know if I've been successful, but my intention has always been to actually be very proactive in that. If we can in, in a 45 minute or 72 minute session, um, embody a different kind of sociability with a different ethics of engagement and relationality, just as a little experiment, a contained 72 minute experiment that maybe that could radiate outwards in a different way where we privilege a very different ethics of sharing and a kind of radical hospitality as opposed to competition or domination or, or, um, a kind of top-down expertise. And actually that's, a, a, and, and, and it's not easy to do that right? Because as human beings, we are all flawed and we all are, no one's infallible. So it's been, um, but it's also been kind of incredible in the sense that of 38 events, only in maybe one or two events, did, did we ever really have problems of people kind of behaving disruptively or right. not abiding by community agreements. And that's, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> well, so. I, I hope I can join one sometime. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, it office hours as we've, as it has, um, developed for the past two years was a space that was primarily by and for people of color, or okay. people who identify as black That's and just yeah. the people of color. Right. We are though launching a public program that will be kind of public to everyone. Um, um, and hopefully that will happen in the fall. I okay. have to kind of like get my, get, get, get it in gear. But, um, but yeah, so that that's it's called, it's called breaking waves and that will happen in the fall and that'll be a, a, a different kind of a different format, but, um, hopefully also one that is really trying to think about what it means to decenter whiteness in our, the creative professions, but also really share strategies towards a kind of, a, a kind of vision of liberation that is multifaceted and, but still collective, um, and, and also really empowering for right. people. I look forward to it. Thanks. Okay. Um, so next question, 30, um, which maybe is maybe will be in response to the question 29. But if there was one ill of the world that you could vanish, what would it be? I mean, just one. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. I, where do I begin? Yeah. I was like, you know, I'm like, I white supremacy, like maybe just as one place to start. But I mean, I could also start with heteropatriarchy. I could start with, you know, like ableism, ageism, it just goes on and on. Right. right? So yeah. 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 Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the next group of questions, um, are quick fire questions. Um, so I won't respond uh, unless something really catches my attention. Um, and there's some favorites in here as well, but they're quite direct. So hopefully they'll be, they'll be simple. Question 31, what is your favorite color? Um, black. Question 32, what is your favorite season? I like cusps. Like, I like transitional moments. So okay. I will say the transition between spring and summer. Okay, very nice. Why? Because the rain? It's, I just, I like the feeling of transformation. Okay. And that you, it's observable over right. time. Okay, very nice. Question 33, do you have a guilty pleasure? Mm, not really no. no good 
Question 34, what is your most prized possession? Um, I would say generally artwork that I've received from friends. Okay. Um, I love, I love being surrounded by beautiful things that people I know have made. Nice. Nice. Question 35, what was your first experience of the AA? Uh, I attended a very weird event. I can't remember what it was called, but students were making, um, sort of architectural structures and performances out of food. Right. This was in 2019. Okay. So there was, I think, like a saw in like bricks made of cake. And I don't know, plaster was the plaster was like, um, the putty was like icing. I don't know what that event was, but yeah. that was in 2019. And I was in the UK on the Richard Rogers residency. And I just was invited to come and just hang out. And I just sort of walked into this like performance food. happening. Right. Yeah. We do a lot with food here. We have a technical studies project that's always done with pasta, so it's <laughs> it's quite common, yeah. Um, last question, question 36. If you can describe the AA in one word, what would it be? Um, smorgasbord? Right. <laughs> I don't know. That's perfect, actually, yeah. Quite like that. All right, well, thank you, Esther. Um, we appreciate your time. Uh, and in collaboration with the AA Public Program, um, this is Ryan Dillon, um, and uh, we just had another window into the world of human facades. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Air AA podcasts are developed, recorded, mixed and edited by the Architectural Association from our home on Bedford Square in central London. To find more episodes, view the show notes and explore other Air AA series, visit air.aaschool.ac.uk.